following resource is from Welford Baptist Church. Well, good morning, church. It's good to see everybody this morning. Let's turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, as we continue in the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to be in verse 22 today. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 22. Well, how many of y'all have ever broken a bone? Anybody ever broken a bone? All right, well, I'm kind of scared to say this out loud, but I've actually never broken a bone. But when I was a kid, I really wanted to. Like, I'll never forget the first time that kid came into a class wearing a cast in like the first grade. They had a really cool story about falling out of a tree or falling off of a bike in the neighborhood or something. I was like, man, I wish I could break my arm. People sign it and stuff. That's pretty cool. Little Timmy comes in later and he's coming in on crutches and I'm like, what are those things? Man, that looks like a good time right there. Then in like the second or third grade, some kid came in late with a really big smile, revealing some new hardware, and I was like, what? You've got metal on your teeth with bright, colorful padding? Like, how do I get me some of those, right? But the biggest one for me, y'all, was glasses. Oh my goodness. Little elementary school me thought glasses were the coolest thing on the planet, and I could not figure out why I was not allowed to have any. So when I heard that watching TV too close messed up your eyes, I'd get right up on the screen. I was just praying that I would need some glasses. When we were in church, I would even hold the hymnal right up to my nose to show I was struggling to see, trying to convince my mom to let me get some glasses. But my theatrics came back to bite me in middle school because even though at that point I had a very weak prescription for glasses, I actually started to have some significant trouble seeing the board, even with my glasses. I started doing this number all the time, right? Like my teachers were telling me, hey, you can come sit on the front row to take your notes, right? So I go home and I tell mom, mom, I really think I need some stronger glasses. And she'd shoot me that look and say, Ricky, you do not need new glasses. She'd shoot me that look and say that for the millionth time. So the way we're doing some sort of annual health day or something at school, like I think they were checking us for scoliosis and we had to have our eyes examined. Do they still do that? I don't know. But anyway, so I passed the scoliosis test, but I miserably failed the eye exam, all right? Like I had to take a note home that basically said to the parents of Ricky Stark, your child is blind, all right? My mom's like, did you, like, intentionally fail this test? And I'm like, mother, why would you think such a thing? This hurts, all right? She's like, all right, I'm taking you to the eye doctor, but you better need some glasses. So we go to the eye doctor, and he has me look through that contraption, right? Look at that chart of letters, and y'all, it is just a blob of blur. Like, even the giant E at the top, I can't see it at all, okay? And he starts with the which is better, one or two. And I'm like, is there supposed to be a difference? I'm not seeing anything. Y'all, I don't know how bad my vision was, but it was bad. So we come out, and he's like, well, he definitely needs glasses. He even said, I would recommend you pay the extra amount for the compact lenses. Otherwise, he's going to need, like, Coke bottles to wear, all right? So I get my glasses, and I'll never forget what it was like to look through them for the first time. So it's like you're looking at it through a fishbowl, right? But I could see 
everything. I mean, things that I didn't even know you were supposed to be able to see. Like, I walked outside, and I le- we're out in the parking lot, and I was like, I can see the billboard across the street. Like, you're supposed to be able to do that? And my mom's like, oh my gosh, it was that bad? And then I see this scraggly tree in the middle of the parking lot, and I'm like, look at the tree over there. It's beautiful. I can see the leaves, mama. I always thought trees were like these green fluffy clouds on a stick that you could only see the detail of when you got up close on it, but I could actually see the leaves and I could see the veins on the leaves. Y'all, even the trash on the ground looked colorful and vibrant. I was like, it's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen, right? So you better believe I have never let my mom live that down. I'm like, remember that time I was blind for like a year and you didn't believe me? But no, in all seriousness, I think my mom's going to have some extra jewels in her crown when she gets to heaven one day for all the shenanigans she had to put up with my brother and me because hashtag boy mom, right? But let that be a lesson to you kids, all right? I cried wolf one too many times. It came back to get me. And I might wear contacts now, but I can attest this day, right? Corrective vision ain't all it's cracked up to be. But Jesus, Jesus actually has something to say about eyes this morning as we continue in the Sermon on the Mount. He tells us this in 6.22. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Now when Jesus says this, when he talks about a healthy or a good eye and a bad or an evil eye, he's not suggesting that people with glasses are more evil than people without glasses, all right? I got to represent for all my fellow corrective vision people in the house, all right? No, he's playing with a common metaphor in Jewish circles, kind of like what we have today where we say the eye is the window to the soul. Well, Jews would often speak of the eye containing a lamp, and this is probably based on the way people thought of vision in the ancient world. Because rather than thinking about light and representations entering into the eye, being interpreted and transferred all up in the brain, ancient people often thought of there being a lamp or a light source in the eye, making it possible for you to see what is out in the world. So the metaphor was that just as the lamp or the light of the eye that radiates out to let you see what is in the world, so too is there a spiritual reality that what goes on inside you eventually comes out into the world. So in other words, whatever's inside you is going to work its way out. If there's a light inside you, the light will radiate out of your life in what you do. And if there's an absence of light in you, there's darkness inside, that too will be evident in how you behave. Hence, they would often describe people who were morally good as people with good eyes. Again, not speaking about their actual quality of physical vision, but instead referring to their heart, that light inside of you that comes out in how you live. And someone who was corrupt was said to have an evil eye. That is, the interior light was dim because they have a dark and a corrupt heart. So we see how this metaphor is completely consistent with what Jesus has been teaching us throughout the Sermon on the Mount. As important as outward behavior is, Jesus isn't just interested in us looking 
looking righteous. He actually wants us to be righteous. He wants us to be pure in heart. Pure meaning that we are holy or completely devoted to God, not divided in our allegiance, trying to serve God one day and ourselves the next. In fact, that's what the word translated as healthy or good is here in this passage. It means whole and complete, single in its pursuit. But we know that left to ourselves, we know none of us has a good eye. All of us have evil eyes because all of us have evil hearts because we are sinners by nature. So there is no light in us. There is only darkness. Isaiah 9-2 says that we walked in darkness. We dwelt in a land of deep darkness. John 3-19 even says that we loved the darkness because our works were evil. Ephesians 5-8 says not only did we love the darkness, We were darkness, and outside of Christ, we are still in darkness. We suppress the truth. We justify and minimize our sin. We chase after what is fleeting. We hate God, whether consciously or subconsciously. Listen to how sinners are described in 2 Timothy 3, verse 2. It says that they are lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Listen, that's on a good day. So to quote Taylor Swift, it's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. Every single one of us would still be this way except for one thing. For those who are disciples of Jesus, God, who is light and in whom there is no darkness at all, has shone on our hearts and made them new, calling us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Isaiah 9-2 says that though we once walked in darkness, we have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. 2 Corinthians 4-6 says, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 8-12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If Ephesians 5.8, for at one time you were darkness, but now, now you are light in the Lord. Indeed, Jesus told us earlier in the sermon that once we experience this light in our hearts, we begin to reflect that light into the world. Remember back in Matthew 5.14, you are the light of the world. You are a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's why Paul goes, on in Ephesians 5 8 to say walk as children of light for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness but instead expose them friends this is good news this morning and I want you to hear me that no matter how great your darkness is one little glimmer of his light can outshine it so don't be afraid this morning Step into the light, my friend. 1 John 1, 7 says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. Listen, my friend, you don't have to live in darkness anymore. You can become a child of light. We rejoice in that this morning. That's good news. 
But what does it have to do with our current passage of Scripture? Why is Jesus bringing this theme up again? Well, he's taking this principle that he's been hitting on throughout the sermon and applying it to the issue of where we place our hope, where we find our meaning, what we see as our treasure. You'll remember how last week Jesus told us not to store up treasures on earth, but in heaven. And he ended the passage by saying, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Well, now he's further showing us how what is inside of us us determines what we seek and what we pursue and he's reminding us that what's inside works its way out and in this passage he's showing us that this is true when it comes to how we view our material possessions because in Jewish culture to have a good eye also meant that you were generous with your resources whereas to have an evil eye meant that you were stingy hoarding your wealth for yourself. This is probably best seen in a parable or story that Jesus shares in Matthew 20 called The Laborers in the Vineyard. If you remember this story, a master goes out and rounds up all these day workers, promising them that he will pay them a denarius at the end of the day for their work. So throughout the day, he's doing this. He's recruiting people throughout the day, hour by hour, bringing more workers in, promising them to pay them, quote, whatever is right. He does this continually all the way into the evening, and then he calls them each forward to be paid. And he starts paying the last ones that began to work, the ones that came in for that final hour. And y'all, he gives each of them a denarius. And then the second to the last crew comes forward, and he gives them a denarius, and so on and so forth, until that initial crew that he recruited early that morning comes forward, and they think, holy cow, he has been so nice and generous. He's given all these people a denarius, but we've been here all day, so I bet he's going to hook us up. So they go forward thinking that's what's going to happen, but when they come forward, the master gives them exactly what he promised them at the beginning of the day. He gives them a denarius, and they are livid. That's not fair, right? They say these last worked only an hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. And the master replies, friend, I am doing you no wrong Did you not agree with me for a denarius? He says, I'm not robbing you. This is exactly what I promised you. So he says, take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Now, we don't have time to unpack the full meaning of that parable today, but listen, what's significant is the way the parable ends in verse 15. Most translations smooth out the Greek here because it's hard to convey the meaning in English. So we say, do you begrudge my generosity? But what the master literally says here is, is your eye bad because I am good? Meaning, you're showing that you are evil in your stinginess because of your reaction to my goodness and my generosity. Do you see then the connection to the present passage? Jesus is teaching us that the evidence that we are children of light, that we have a pure heart, that we have a good eye, that our treasure is in the right place, is that we are a generous 
people. In other words, those whose hearts are aligned with God will not be marked by greed, but rather by sacrificial giving. Why? Because our God is himself a generous, self-sacrificial giver. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Philippians 4.19, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So we see that God's kindness and his benevolence in all the many good gifts that he gives us, all that he fills our lives with, both materially and spiritually. But we know that the depth of his generosity is especially demonstrated through the work of Jesus. Indeed, Scripture tells us that God is so generous that in Romans 8.32 it says, He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. More than that, He didn't show that generosity to us when we were His friends, but rather when we were His enemies. Romans 5.8 says, God shows His love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Listen, when you were at your worst, when you were least worthy of His love, God poured out His riches on you, taking upon himself the penalty that we deserve by dying on the cross Jesus made it possible for you to be made right with God for your evil eye to become a good eye a healthy eye a whole eye and for you to become righteous as he is righteous for you to become generous as he is generous 2 Corinthians 8 9 says for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Listen, Jesus didn't make us spiritually rich so that we could hoard his blessing. No, he showed us his blessing so that we might be a blessing to others. Because when you've experienced God's self-sacrificial generosity, it's hard not to extend that type of generosity yourself. That's why 1 John 3.17 says this, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Psalm 112.9 says the righteous one, the one whose heart is aligned with the heart of God, has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. 2 Corinthians 9.7 says God loves a cheerful giver. It goes on to say in verse 11, You will be enriched in every way. For what purpose? to be generous in every way. Indeed, that's exactly what Jesus is calling us to in this passage. After warning us not to store up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but to store up treasures in heaven, Jesus is going to take it up a notch, explaining that the reason our heart is where our treasure is is because what we treasure reveals where our loyalty, where our allegiance is. Look at verse 24. He says, no one, <clears throat> no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The word translated money here is actually the word mammon, an Aramaic word which means more than just money. It also includes all our material possessions. And scholars have often debated why Matthew preserved the Aramaic word here, mammon, instead of translating it into Greek like he did with the rest of what Jesus said. Many people think that it's because by calling it mammon instead of just wealth, Matthew wanted us to think of it as an idol, as if he were naming a false 
God. Now, whether that's true or not, Jesus is definitely communicating that idea with the rest of what he says here, because he's literally telling us that we need to choose which God we're going to serve, because he calls God and mammon what? Two masters. So the idea here is that we are all slaves to something. We all yield to the power and the control of something. We know that after the fall of mankind, we all became sinners by nature. Jesus actually goes so far as to say in John 8, 34, that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Likewise, Titus 3, 3 says that as sinners, we are slaves to various passions and pleasures. Or as 2 Peter 2, 19 says, we are slaves of of corruption. What does that mean? That means that in our sin nature, we are governed and we are ruled by sin. Our heart is corrupt, which means we pursue what is corrupt. That's why in our own power, we not only could never reach God, we would never even seek God. We would never even desire to seek God. But listen to what Paul says in Romans 6, 17. He says, but thanks be to God that though that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to what you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Verse 19, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification, that is holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness, right? As slaves to sin, None of us was righteous. None of us desired to do what was right. But what fruit, he says, what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed for the end of those things is death. But now, now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification. That is holiness, a heart aligned with his, and its end is not death, but what? Eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, he says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're all a slave to something. We were all slaves to sin, but how do we go from that? How do we go from being a slave to sin to becoming a slave to righteousness, a slave to God? Well, Paul tells us earlier in Romans 6, verse 5, he says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, talking about Jesus, we shall certainly be united with Christ in a a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive in Christ Jesus. How do we go from being a slave to sin to a slave of righteousness, a slave of God? How do we exchange masters? Well, we see, according to this passage, we need to be brought from death to life. Or as Jesus told us in John 3, by the Holy Spirit, we need to be born again. Or to return to our passage this morning in its language, we need a new heart that treasures the right thing. Because as we saw last week, what we adore defines who we are and determines what we become. Church, we need a new heart. 
And that's exactly what God promises us as we put our faith and our trust in Jesus. And Jesus now applies this again specifically to the issue of material wealth. And it's really interesting here because wouldn't you expect that if Jesus is talking about two masters, he would say, you can't serve God and the devil. Or you can't serve God and sin. Or you can't serve God and the world. Or you can't serve God and yourself. And all of those things are certainly true that's said elsewhere in Scripture. But instead, here we see that Jesus says we cannot serve God and money or mammon. And Jesus doesn't do this randomly. He's being very intentional with his language here. Why does Jesus set these two things up against each other? As we saw last week, it's not that Jesus is anti-wealth. Because as we saw, to be generous, you need something with which to be generous with, right? But he's showing us that that we need to be very careful with our wealth because there's something unique about material possessions that keeps us bogged down in the pursuit of the things of this world and has the tendency to pull us away from God, that tempts us to put our hope in what we have instead of the God who holds all things. Scripture warns us of this regularly. In particular, look at 1 Timothy 6.10. It says this, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Notice, it doesn't say that money is the root of all kinds of evil, but what? The love of money. Why? It goes on to say, because it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Why? Because the early church was seeing following Jesus is often going to cost you something. It might cost you your house, your job, your goods. So you can see why the love of these things would have caused many people to walk away from Jesus. Because where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. What we adore defines and determines who we are. That's why Jesus says that it is harder for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Again, not because Jesus is anti-wealth. Some of his own followers and his earthly ministry were wealthy, including, by the way, some wealthy women like Joanna and Susanna who helped financially support Jesus' ministry. No, that's not his issue here. He's telling us, he's warning us about this because there's something about about this stuff that keeps us focused on this world instead of finding our hope in the coming kingdom. As we see with the rich young ruler who was all set to follow Jesus until Jesus told him to sell his possessions and give to the poor. And then he was like, ha, J-K-L-O-L-B-R-B, right? And that's why Jesus says here, you can't serve two masters. You will hate the one and and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. He's saying you need to choose what you are going to be governed by. Are you going to be a slave to material goods or out of allegiance to your master, King Jesus, are you going to use your material goods for his glory and the good of those around you? That's why Paul went on to say this in 1 Timothy 6, 17. He says, as for the rich in this present age, which by the way, if you're not worried about where your next meal is coming from, you are considered rich from a biblical standpoint. So I think it's fair to say all of us in here from a biblical standpoint, we're rich. He's talking to us as for the rich in this present age. 
charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly Life. Do you see what Paul is getting at here? He's showing us how foolish it would be to put your trust in material goods. Because anything that you have in this life is going to fail you at some point. Things fall apart. Items deteriorate. Houses burn down. Cars break down. Banks close. Jobs are lost. Things are stolen. Bodies waste away. So instead of putting your trust in those things, Paul says, put your trust in God. And here's the crazy thing. If you do that, what does he say that God does in return? It says he will richly provide us with everything to enjoy enjoy again god is not a killjoy when he calls us to abandon something it's not because he wants to rob us of joy it's because he's inviting us into a greater joy he's calling you out of those disordered loves that we saw last week and into a greater love and the irony is if you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness as we'll see next week what does it say he's going to do it says all these things will be added to you. In other words, he will abundantly bless you. He will abundantly supply your needs. The irony here is that we think we need to hold on to all our material goods to be happy, but the greatest happiness results not in holding on, but in freely giving away. Not only because we are freed of lesser loves, but also because we are now free to pursue God with our whole heart resting in the joy that I don't need anything but Jesus because he will supply my every need. Indeed, when we hoard, when we're stingy, it not only shows how evil we are, we know that it also makes us miserable. And the reason for this is because by holding on to something too tightly, by loving it in a disordered way, we end up sucking the joy out of it. Because we take something good and make it evil because we loved it in the wrong order. Look at the analogy of water for just a second. If I hoard water in a container, what's going to happen to it? It's going to become stagnant. It's going to stink. It's going to even become harmful to drink. It's going to become unfriendly to life. Listen, by holding onto it too tightly, I've robbed it of its good purpose and its usefulness. But in contrast, the body of water that's in motion, it's constantly being filled, and in return, it's filling other bodies of water, being generous with its resources. What happens? Well, that body of water is going to flourish, and everything that body of water touches is going to flourish. It's going to be full of life, going to be full of refreshment. Church, it's the same thing when it comes to our use of resources God has entrusted to us. If we hoard them for our own benefit, they are wasted. They grow stagnant. And worse than that, James 5 tells us they will actually serve as witnesses against us on the day of judgment. They will lead to our judgment and destruction. But if out of the good that God has bestowed on us, we in turn bestow goodness on others, that is not only the sign of a pure heart, a heart single in its devotion and aligned with the heart of God. We see in Scripture here, it also leads to our greater happiness and to our flourishing, because that's how God 
has wired things because he created all things to show his hidden nature, his hidden attributes. And our God, as we've seen, is a generous God. So his people are a generous people. And God rewards the generous. He shows generosity to those who show generosity. That's why Proverbs 11.24 says this, One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. Listen, why do we cling to our material wealth? Well, it's because we don't want to want. But if the Lord is your shepherd, you're promised, you shall not want. So why would you put your trust in something that can only let you down? Instead, put your hope in God. Adore him. He will take care of everything else. You know, years back when I was a college student, I heard John Piper preach at a conference in Greenville. And if you know anything about John Piper, he literally wrote the book on desiring God. Making God your joy. Making God your treasure. And so some of my friends and I, we waited in line for a long time afterwards uh, to, to talk to Piper. He was speaking to each person as they came by, answering their questions. He was so generous with his time. And when we finally got up to him, one of my friends asked, how do we balance this, right? This tension between enjoying the gifts that God has given us and also obeying the call to deny ourselves, you know, one, one part of Piper's answer struck me then, and it stuck with me ever since, all these years later. See, in helping us to think through this practically, he said, you know, as college students right now, I know it doesn't seem like you have a lot to work with. He said, but even now, set governors on your spending. He said, because the odds are this is the poorest you will ever be in your life. He said, figure out what you need not just what you want. And then he said, be generous with the few excess resources you have. He said, when you start to realize how little you actually need, you start to be freed up to give more away. He told us, even now, with the little bit that you have, he told us this would set a pattern for us for the rest of our lives, that even as we had little, to use the little that we had to be generous to others. And then he challenged us this, he said, and when you graduate and you get a real job, statistically speaking, you're going to make more than you actually need. So he warned us. He said, even there, be intentional. Figure out what you actually need to support you and your family. And he said, and then what should you do with the rest? We were like, tell us. He said, give it away. Our jaws about hit the floor. We were like, that sounds crazy. But then we were like, wait a second, that sounds a lot like what Jesus said to the rich young ruler. Now listen, Piper wasn't telling us to be reckless here. Of course, in wisdom, we should put some things aside for savings, emergency, retirement. He certainly wasn't telling us that we needed to go be a hermit in a mud hut in the wilderness, all right? No, he was challenging us to see how much we've convinced ourselves that we need to survive when perhaps we should be thinking more about how little we need so that we can free up more resources to be a blessing to others and to advance God's kingdom, to step out in faith even when it comes with great financial 
risk. Because that's what our money is for, to make much of God, not us. That's why God has blessed us with these resources, not so that we can hoard them for ourselves, because they're not even ours in the first place. They're his. As David says in 1 Chronicles 29, 14, he says, Who am I and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly, to make this offering? He says, For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. He's, he's realizing the irony here, right? That whenever I give an offering, I'm not giving anything to God. It's already his. I'm just giving it back to him. And that's exactly what God has called us to do. He's entrusted us with resources for, to use for his glory and the good of others and the advancement of his kingdom. You know, they say, you show me your bank statement, I'll show you what, what you worship. I bet every single one of us, if we really started to pay attention to how we spend our money, first of all, we'd start to see a pattern of what we do treasure, what we do value. But I wonder what might happen if we also take a look at our bank statement and think, okay, I know my mission. I'm here to be a blessing. How can I free up more resources to be a blessing to others, in particular to get the gospel where it has not yet been? Because again, according to Jesus, if we truly love God, that love is going to trump any love for material goods. Because our treasure is not on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Our treasure is in heaven. And if we truly love God, that will be seen in how we live. So choose you this day whom you will serve. Because Jesus makes it clear, you can use money to serve God but you can't serve both God and money. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more information about our church, visit welfordchurch.org. Blessings.